welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who's going to 11 church services this week. <laughs> that makes my head hurt. <laughs> You're going to almost as many church services this week as yoga classes I'm teaching this week. And that's my job. And church services are probably longer than yoga classes. Uh, some of them are like a half an hour. Okay, so some of them are shorter. One of them is going to be really short. That's good. <laughs> what happens in the really short one? Uh, that's when the Easter basket gets blessed. It's Holy Week for anyone not uh, listening to this when it, when it uh, comes out. It won't be Holy Week when you listen to it, but... But we are recording in the middle of Holy Week. Brian has graced me with his presence the week leading up to Easter <laughs> so that we could sit down and talk about religion. Wait, so this is when your Easter basket full of things from the nice Slovak ladies gets blessed? Yeah, well, the Slovak ladies just have told me what to put in the basket. Yeah. Uh, I make all of the things in the basket. It's true. I'm just excited for egg cheese. It'll be really good. It's my favorite part. <laughs> it's called. If you ask half of my family, it's called Sidak. If you ask the other half of the family, it's called Haruta. I don't care what it's called. It's delicious. <laughs> but it's real tasty. It's one of my favorite parts of Easter every year is eating egg cheese from Brian. It basically tastes like tamago, if, you, if you've had that. Anybody listening? Yeah. But it's great. <laughs> All right. Enough about food. What are we talking about this week, Brian? This week, we are talking about the seven deadly sins. Ooh, I'm excited. <laughs> this is a good one. Yeah, this, uh, I didn't know a lot about this, to be honest. That's awesome. I uh, feel like this is a thing that people have a lot of preconceived notions about, so we'll see what sticks and what does not. Yeah, so, how many of them can you name? Ooh, we love it when I count things on this show. <laughs> I'm doing it on my fingers, for those of you following along at home. Uh, let's see here. There is greed, uh-huh. envy, uh-huh. lust, gluttony, sloth. Pride. Yep. One more. Oh my god. Greed. Envy. Lust. Sloth. Pride. Gluttony. Oh my god. Then kind of stabby. Oh, uh, <laughs> is, it's not rage. You're close. But it's it, wrath. There you go. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Great. So the, yes, those are the seven. I got it. <laughs> That's the concept that we have today. Yeah. Biblical origins. This list is not in the Bible. Great. <laughs> I suspected that was probably true. I don't know why I would have guessed that, but I am not surprised. What is interesting, though, is there is a list of seven sins in the book of Proverbs. But it's not these ones? It's not these ones. Is it close to them, or is it totally different sins? It's pretty different. Here, I'll, re- I'll read you the passage. Okay. So it says, uh, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Okay. Those are all things that are probably good to avoid. Yeah, like, that's fair. Not a bad list, for sure. But it's not the seven deadly sins that we think of. Right. And also my favorite thing about this is, through all of the translations... And different editions and editing of the Bible, we have this weird correction where they say, there are six things. No, actually, make it seven that God hates. <laughs> they never managed to edit out the we can't count part of this. 
I don't know why, but that is really funny to me. Yeah, I was wondering about the, the six and then the seven, but I figured there was probably something about it. Is no. it because one of the, there's six things and then one person? No, it doesn't seem like it. Some translations more than others will be like, there are six things. No, actually, I mean seven. Oh, like it's really a correction. <laughs> it depends on which translation you're looking at, though. This one didn't call it out quite as much. That's amazing. <laughs> But yeah, not the same list. So how did we go from this list to the list that I named at the beginning of the episode? Well, we're not there yet. We still have some other lists. There's a lot of lists of sins in the Bible. I'm only going to give you one more, though. Okay, I like a good list. And, you know, we gotta have a list from our buddy Paul. Yay! Good friend of the show, Paul. Paul lists 15 sins of the flesh. Of course he did. (laughs) Paul, you're killing me. So Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, that's one, together. Yep. Idolatry and witchcraft, also one together. Okay. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, it's one, I think, together. Yeah. Uh, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's only... 13. Okay, then maybe uh, maybe a couple that I put together. Together come separately. I, he never gives a number. I wrote down this number that it was 15. Okay. So well, that's my fault, not Paul's. Still. Wow, <laughs> some of those also feel repetitive. Like, the idea that orgies is its own specific sin to him is weirdly specific, Paul. And I you know, know that you have complicated, frustrated feelings about sex. I mean, so he's not he's not doing the same thing as our list. He's just, like, listing bad things. <laughs> he, these are just, like, the first 15 bad things that came to his mind. Yeah, specifically sins of the flesh. Okay, that makes it more sense why orgies gets its own sin. Yeah. And also witchcraft. Right, so these are, like, yeah, Im- embodied physical things. Yeah. Um, and he says, uh, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He sure hopes not. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah. Pause. Okay. Paul's mad about these things. Paul Paul really doesn't like sinning. And here are some sins that he can name off the top of his head. Yeah, that's... So you better not do those. And the Galatians were doing them, and he told them, hey, you guys, quit it. I've told you this before. Cut it with the orgies. Exactly. Stop <laughs> it. Cut it with the witchcraft. Cut it with the violence. Stop it. Exactly. I assume other people list sins at various points in the Bible then? Yeah. So do not worry. All seven of the, the list that we know and love... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> know and think of... Yeah, they're, they're all prohibited somewhere in the Bible, just not all in one neat contained little list. That makes sense. They're definitely all prohibited by Paul somewhere. <laughs> He's nothing if not thorough. <laughs> That's very true. Most of them are also called out at various points in the Hebrew Bible. I'm making an effort going forward to switch from calling it the Old Testament to calling it the Hebrew Bible. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Megan. That was a good clarification, so. Yeah, trying to be a little more inclusive. Yeah. Specifically, these... Sins are called out mostly in Job and Proverbs, where we find them explicitly. Yeah. That's really all we've got for biblical. Cool. So historical, we're actually going to start outside of Christianity for this. Interesting. Where are we starting? We're going to start in Greek and Roman culture. Okay. The idea of lists of virtues was popular in these ancient cultures. In the 4th century BCE, the Greek philosopher Aristotle made a list of virtues. But he also explained that too much or too little of each of these virtues was a vice. Ah, so moderation is the key. Yeah. 
So for example, courage is the virtue that falls in between cowardice and foolhardiness. Okay, that makes sense. So this idea of calling out specific uh, vices and virtues is found in this culture. And this concept of the, the virtue being at, in the middle is called the golden mean. Nice. Get a little mathematical on us there. Sure. I don't, yeah. I don't know that we're actually getting the numbers. It's just middle. No, but it mean is a mathematical term in my brain. Okay. I'm just like, oh, that's a thing you learn in math. Fair enough. Yeah. But that you find that, that middle space between going too far away from something or too far into it. Mm-hmm. We have lots of thinkers talking about these sorts of ideas from centuries before the life of Jesus, and we don't get an explicit version, uh, a Christian version of a list of vices until the 4th century. Okay. So now we're starting to put it together. Yeah. So this first list that we get comes from the mystic and theologian Evagoras Ponticus. Okay. He was born in Ibora, which is present-day Turkey. Cool. In the mid-4th century, but he did most of his writing while living in Egypt. And so he is part of a group of Egyptian mystics. Ooh. I like it when people are called mystics. Yeah, there's a lot of mystics. Yeah. And they all (laughs) sound fancier because they're mystics. And, man, they have some kooky stuff sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you never know what you're going to get. So yeah. what is his list, then? So his his list is contained in his most famous work, The Practicos. It's a 30-page but 100-chapter book on oh. how to live a holy disciplined life. Wow. I guess, like, if you're really breaking stuff down specifically, you put a lot of breaks in? Yeah, either very short chapters or very big pages. I don't know. Ooh, I didn't even think about very big pages. <laughs> My mind meant, went immediately to very short chapters. But maybe they are really... Because you know, like, Bibles usually are, like, two columns. You're probably right on it being very short chapters, but Giant Book is also just funny to me. I like Giant Book. <laughs> In my dreams, it's now Giant Book. <laughs> In chapter six of his book, he lists the eight evil thoughts. Gluttony, prostitution or fornication, or... One, another source, just called it impurity. Okay. Avarice, which is greed. Yeah. Sadness, specifically sadness at another's good fortune. Okay. Anger or wrath. Acedia, which is apathy. Mm-hmm. Vainglory or boasting. And pride. Okay, so sadness is sort of the one that drops from that list from our seven deadly sins we think of? Not really. Where we just sort of have to like combine some of them in different ways. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to how they got combined. But the one that stands out as markedly different is sadness. We don't drop sadness entirely, but it does develop over time. Thagreus mm-hmm. also said, We cannot decide whether or not we will be attacked by the eight evil thoughts, but it is up to us to decide if they linger within us or not, and whether or not they stir up our passions. Ah, so you have control over how you handle these thoughts when they come to you. Yeah. Because they will. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of the root of all sin. The thoughts themselves are not deadly. No. It's how you choose to act on them. Yeah, and it's there's also no mention of any of this being deadly. He doesn't call them the deadly sins. Mm-hmm. He calls them the evil thoughts. There we go. And that's very different. The idea that, like, these are thoughts. They're sort of uncontrollable. You get to react to them versus sins, which feels a little more active. Yeah. And... Yeah, these are just main categories that mm-hmm. other things get broken down into. Sure. And so, also, Evagrius wrote his list in Greek. So, 
this work was more influential in the Eastern Church. That makes sense. The way this list spreads to the Western Church is through St. John Cassian. Okay. Side note, Evagrius is not a saint because he said a lot of heretical things. Good for him. (laughs) I mean, also sad for him, but like, good for him. Yeah, there's a lot of early church theologians that are not saints because they said some wild stuff. Oh my gosh. Are a lot of them mystics? <laughs> Probably a good a good portion of them are mystics. Crazy mystics. There's also some mystics who got to be saints. Good. Also good for them. <laughs> like Hildegard. Hildegard, yes. Definitely a mystic. One also of my awesome. favorite mystics. <laughs> also awesome. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we get St. John Cassian. He was born in the mid-4th century in Romania. Lived in Egypt for a while which is probably where he came across the writings of Evagrius. That makes sense. But he eventually settled in France, where he founded a monastery for women and another for men. Okay. Not a double monastery, sorry. Damn it. Separate I do like a double monastery. It was Bridget with the double monastery? I believe so. I think so too. Yeah, because that was when Megan was here. Yeah, I was. all of that was overshadowed in my head by the fact that maybe she was a priest, because that was the coolest part of that story. For sure. <laughs> that for me, it was discovering double monasteries. Fair enough. John Cassian, he wrote his version of Eight Principal Vices That Attack Humankind. Okay. And his list was written in Latin. All right, so that makes it easier for the Western Church to sort of start picking up on, right? Yeah. Latin was the standard for the Western Church. His list is gluttony, lust or fornication, avarice or love of money, anger or wrath, sadness, despair, or despondency... Acedia, boastfulness or vainglory, and pride. There we go. So very, very similar. Yes. Quite, quite few deviations there. And the closest thing Cassian gets to mentioning death is when he's talking about lust, he mentions when lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, but when sin has been consummated, it brings forth death. Ah, so sort of deadly. Yeah, but again, it's, these are... The main root causes of the sin, the sin comes from them, the sins themselves are the problem. Okay. So we're still separating these as ideas as opposed to sins themselves. Yeah, because it's hard to think of an action that is lust the action. Yeah. They're not on their own sins. That makes sense. The next development we get is at the tail end of the 6th century in 590 CE, Pope Gregory I wrote the Moralia on Job, and in it he included a list of seven capital sins. There you go. And Job was a book in the Hebrew Bible that these sins came up in, or lists of sins or something, right? Yes. They they do, some of them come up in there. Job is a story of this real good dude, Job, who... God was made a bet with the devil that the devil was like, hey, I bet if things weren't so great for Job, he wouldn't be still be following you, God. Oh, dear. And God was like, oh, yeah, let's try it. And then a bunch of bad things happened to Job. See, the one whose wife gets turned into a pillar of salt. No, that's different. That's Lot. Okay. Lot's wife. There's too many three named <laughs> dudes in the Hebrew Bible. But yeah, lots of bad things happened to Job. Okay. Poor Job. <laughs> And his friends are terrible people. (laughs) (laughs) Are they terrible people or are they made to be terrible people by a crazy bet between God and the devil? No, his friends are just terrible people because they're like, "Mm, 
Terrible things are happening to you. What did you do to cause that? Oh, okay. Yeah, his friends are not cool. No fun. All right. <laughs> so what are the seven sins that Pope Gregory the First? Yes. Or Gregory the Great, as some Ooh. people call him. Okay. Basidia got rolled into sadness. Vainglory got rolled into pride. And we add envy. Oh, envy is the one we have been missing. You're right. Yeah. So that's how we get our list. Ah, so it all comes from Greg. Yeah, he's the, the one who makes it official seven. Greg the Great. He also ranked his sins from most serious to least. Interesting. What's most serious? The ranking is based on how much they offend against love. Okay, against love. So the final list, you want to take a guess? It's oh. probably not what you're thinking. No, I, I want you to tell me because I'm sure I'll, I won't guess it right. Just guess one. Which which sin do you think offends most against love? Um, Either pride or envy? Wow. Did I guess it? Yeah. It's the top two are pride and then envy. Huh. <laughs> well, I think people probably want to guess lust. That was where I thought. Which I, was my first guess. And then I was like, no, because I feel like lust and love are very connected. Sure. And so, like, if you're trying to think of what's furthest away from love, like, things that make you love other people the least are things like envy. That makes sense. Or, like, being so prideful in yourself that you're not taking care of other people. I think if you separate love from, like, romantic love, it's easier to make the mental jump to pride slash pride and or envy. That's sort of where my brain went, at least. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And that, that you and you and Greg on the same page. Me and Greg. <laughs> so, so what's the list? What's yeah, the, the ranked order? list uh, from most offending against love to least, it's pride, envy, anger, sadness, avarice, gluttony, lust. Interesting. There you go. Yeah. Now you know. Sadness still on this list. This list still looks a little different than the list we had at the yeah. top. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Sure. But for, I trust you. Yeah. It'll event, it all eventually circles back. I around. know we will. Uh, the The next development we have in this is in the 13th century. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, an Italian theologian, he wrote about the seven deadly sins in his famous work, the Summa Theologica. Wow, it's been a while since we've talked about Thomas Aquinas on the show, I feel like. That's true. I like, knew... maybe the first episode, I think he comes up in Original Sin. Yeah, he definitely does. I usually end up talking more about... Augustine. Yeah. Um, partly because he's a little earlier, but, but I yeah. don't know. Aquinas just, has lots of good things to say. Yeah. It's just been a while since he's made an appearance on Sunday School. Yeah. He's usually a little more philosophical than I go, but important dude. Yeah. And he's here today. Yeah. So what is his list slash things on this? So he called the list the seven capital vices. Okay. He used... Capital from the Latin word for head, kaput. I don't know if that's how you say it, because that sounds like Russian, but, but... Okay, but they're capital vices. Yeah, coming from the word meaning head, because these sins are at the head, they lead to all others. Oh, that makes sense. As it was like, head because they're in your head, but... Yes. All right. But also, that would that would also make sense. Sure. What are his, What's his list? Uh, his list is the same as... Greg's. It's just not like ranked in order of importance in that weird way. Right. That was actually Aquinas's main sticking point is that he did not believe that you could rank these sins. Ah, that they were just all so at the top of the top of the top that it wasn't, you couldn't rank them from there. They all had to be 
equally as bad or whatever. Yeah, they're all they're all on an even plane. They're not worse sins than other sins. They're just the root cause of a bunch of sins that are varying degrees of bad on their own. They're the, I mean, I want to say like original sins, but not original sins in the original sin sense. They are the sort of base sins. Yeah. I pulled a quote from him. He says, A capital vice is that which has an exceedingly desirable end, so that in his desire for it a man goes on to the commission of many sins, all of which are said to originate in that vice as their chief source. It is not then the gravity of the vice in and of itself that makes it capital, but rather the fact that it gives rise to many other sins. So they're the gateway drugs to sin. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I like that. (laughs) The seven gateway drugs. (laughs) I also like his idea that, like, these are things that feel good. And because they feel good, you're going to do more of them. But they're also bad. (laughs) There's a lot of that in theology. (laughs) Oh, no. I shouldn't do this. this, this it is... feels good. That mean, that must mean God doesn't want me to. Yeah. Of course not. <laughs> I'm glad we don't do that as much anymore. Same. Uh, so. <laughs> so Aquinas has his... He takes the ranking out of the situation. Yeah. And around this time, 13th century, there was a lot of focus on the seven deadly sins. Is Dante going to show up at some point? Is this Dante or am I too early for Dante? Oh, no, you're you're right on. Good. I was like, is Dante 13th century or is Dante 16th century? I Dante is 14th century, right. but you're very close, yeah. Okay, cool. Because he writes a lot about the seven deadly sins. He does. So the reason everyone is talking about the seven deadly sins at this point is probably in part because at the fourth council of Latrian, it was made a requirement for every Christian over the age of discretion to go to confession at least once a year. Okay, so now you have to be able to articulate what your sins are. Right. This is really when we're getting the rise of individual confession, going into a confessional, talking to a priest about your sins. Which means you have to know when you're sinning. Right. So now you have to know what sins are. Yeah, so like there were lots of guidebooks that were put out. Like, this is how you do an examination of conscience. This is how you tell what your sins were. If it feels good, you probably need to confess it. (laughs) Yeah. Probably. (laughs) There's a lot of that happening. Yeah, so individual confession started a little bit earlier than the 13th century. People were doing it just as a custom, but it was just made official at this point, at this council. Cool. And you can see this reflected in the culture that everybody's talking about sins. That makes sense. Because people are punished according to their seven deadly sins in Dante's Inferno. Yeah. 14th century. And the seven deadly sins are mentioned by name by that title, The Seven Deadly Sins, in the Canterbury Tales. There you go. Is that the first time it's called that? I couldn't nail down the first time it was called that, but I couldn't find anything earlier than that. Okay. But somewhere around there is where they get articulated into that. Yeah, they were definitely being called that. No writings that I could find by any theologians called them The Seven Deadly Sins. They called them capital or cardinal sins, usually. Interesting. Um, So it seems to be a colloquialism that they were the seven deadly sins. And And also that makes it, if it comes from the Canterbury Tales, it means that it's a specifically English colloquialism. Because the Canterbury Tales is the early English language. Yeah, and it might might have been earlier than that. People might have been calling them that other places. I couldn't find anything. I tried. Mm -hmm. But no, I think that's really cool that it's a specifically English language thing. Yeah, it, that it's not like a translation of Latin or Greek or Italian or whatever. Right. Like, it might very well be a 
What's it called when they like started translating Bibles into languages that weren't Latin? What was it when they called it those languages? In the vernacular? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Vernacular is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, that it might be like a particularly vernacular phrase. Yeah, it could be. That's cool. Nice. And so then the the last update that we get to the list of seven deadly sins is in the 17th century when sadness gets changed to sloth. There you go. Ah, no. That makes sense. Who changes it? Or like, when does it change? How does it change? I honestly couldn't really find a, a specific person who changed it. It just seemed to be like an administrative church change. They were like, this makes more, this articulates better what we're trying to say. That seems to be, yeah. We're not saying that it's bad to be sad. Right. We're saying it's bad to wallow. Yeah. Quit just being lazy. Stop sitting around. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the end. That's how we get the modern list of seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had some other interesting kind of related things. Cool. I love a good fun fact. So there are also seven heavenly virtues. Ooh. Are you going to make me try and name them because there's no way I can do that? They're basically just the, the opposite. opposite of the seven deadly sins. There's actually, it's confusing. There's two, there seems to be two lists. There's one that is just in opposition to the seven deadly sins. And then there's another that is based on four classical Greek virtues and then three virtues listed by Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians. Okay. I have down here the the seven in opposition to the sins, yeah. because that's more relevant to what we're talking about. That makes sense. The seven heavenly virtues in this list are chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. Just opposites. Yeah. I think it's like your brain has to like figure out what the opposites of all of those things are for a quick second. There's like a brief... Like, if mental gymnastics is the verb you're looking for, it's just like a brief somersault in between each one. Yeah. It's not like heavy gymnastics, but there's like a little bit that has to happen there. Yeah, it's it's very nice when they are in charts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you put that in an Excel spreadsheet, I'm a happy girl. Yeah. And it's also the other list that is not directly in opposition. People have tried throughout history to like... Wedge it in there. Yeah, finagle it into... These are kind of opposites to the... And some of them work and some of them totally don't. Yeah. I know off the top of my head, Paul's theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. Or sometimes instead of love, people say charity. Okay. So like, where does hope go? Right. Exactly. It's... (laughs) Yeah. Those are virtues. Cool. Generally, do those things. Don't do the other things. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Or like, do the Greek thing and find the point in between those two and sort of like, read that line. Fair enough. (laughs) I'm all about moderation. (laughs) So another thing is the seven deadly sins are not necessarily worse than other sins, but there is another concept that is two different categories of sin. Ooh. I think we might have talked a little bit about it on Sounds a previous episode. vaguely familiar. Remind me, though. Venial sins versus mortal sins. Also still sounding sort of familiar. I mean, I understand mortal sins sounds familiar. Venial sin sounds slightly familiar. Okay, I think this might have been going all the way back to Original Sin. Probably. That was 26 episodes ago. That's very true. Yeah. Venial sins are lesser. If you die with an unconfessed venial sin, you won't necessarily go to hell. Okay. You might just have more time built up in purgatory. All right. And then Um, mortal sins are like, no, 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 no. Mortal sins are the real bad ones. 
you can't receive communion with unconfessed mortal sins. So we might have talked about it in communion also. We might have. They also cause separation from God or soul death. Ooh, that's dramatic. Soul death. That's the name of someone's metal band. So, fun story. I'm ready. I was in Nebraska for a wedding a while back. Yes. And I was on the treadmill and the Catholic TV station was on on the TV in the gym. Your favorite thing. I, it was weird. I was intrigued, but it was weird. And there was a children's program on. And in this children's program, they were talking about mortal sins. And at one point they said, and mortal sins cause soul death. And I was like, this is for children. What is going on, Nebraska? (laughs) Calm down, Nebraska. (laughs) If any of our listeners live in Nebraska, we love you. But also, calm down, Nebraska. It was very funny, and it was a little off-putting. Which, that story also reminds me, all of today's episode is, like, pretty explicitly Catholic. Yeah. Some Protestants have used the concept of the seven deadly sins to illustrate ideas, but most of what we talked about today is going to be pretty Catholic. Fair and good to know. Yeah. Finishing on mortal sins. If you die having committed a mortal sin and have not confessed it, you will go to hell. Is Well, there you go. What the official teaching is. Okay. And then the other fun fact, we're veering a little more into things that might be were familiar to our evangelical friends, Mm -hmm. there's one sin that the Bible says is unforgivable. What's that? It's mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. I'm going to read the the section from Matthew. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So is this taking the Lord's name in vain? (laughs) Don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit or you've got no shot. Um, (laughs) You're done. uh, But yeah, so (laughs) this was not a thing that was taught or really emphasized when I was a kid. But I do know that this has terrified lots and lots of evangelical kids. It's like, oh no, if I (laughs) said... If I say, oh my god, am I going to go to hell and never be forgiven? Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. So, sorry guys. Hopefully you haven't done that. I guess I'm going to hell and can't be forgiven. Oops. Me too. (laughs) Uh, Although I'm probably going to hell for a lot of other reasons. Let's be clear. (laughs) The explanation that gets given more often than that terrifying, easy to commit one is just unbelief. Yeah. So if you're... If you're like, ah, forget the spirit. I don't believe in that. Yeah. That would be, I guess. More. That makes more sense and is less extreme and terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I've got. Sorry if you've been terrified by that sin. You know, hopefully you'll forgive (laughs) us. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it is time for the patronage pop quiz where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of. I can't wait. Who's our saint this week? This week, we've got St. Dunstan. Dunstan. I think that's how you say that name. We're going to go with that. Sure. (laughs) He was born in the early 10th century to a noble family in Boltonsboro, England. Before his birth, 
His mother was in the Church of St. Mary on Candle Day, when all the candles were suddenly extinguished. Wait, what's Candle Day? I know Candlemas is a thing that's around Christmas. Okay, sure. We'll go with that. It's not a thing that I have ever particularly celebrated. Awesome. It might be a more British thing. Cool. I believe it. But anyway. All the candles go out. We're on Candle Day. All the candles go out. Dun dun dun. Then the candle held by his mother was suddenly relighted. And all present lit their candles from this miraculous flame. Thus foreshadowing that the boy would be a minister of eternal light to the Church of England. Aww. At this point, the Catholic Church in England, not the Church of England as in Anglicans. Good clarification. <laughs> Strong clarification. <laughs> Just so everyone's aware. Just so we know where we're at, guys. <laughs> we're before all that happened. Dunstan was educated by Irish monks who noted the enthusiasm with which he absorbed every kind of human knowledge. He was a noted musician, he played the harp and composed several hymns, he was a skilled metal worker, and he illuminated manuscripts. When he was a teen, he was sent to the court of King Athelstan. He became a Benedictine monk and was ordained by his uncle, Alfage. After he was ordained, he spent some time as a hermit at Glastonbury, but then was recalled to the royal court by King Edmund, who appointed him the abbot of the Glastonbury Abbey. He developed the abbey into a great center of learning and also helped to revitalize other monasteries in the area. After King Edmund was murdered, King Edred rose to the throne and Dunstan became one of his close advisors. This position allowed him to reform even more monasteries all across Edred's realm. Dunstan also became deeply involved in secular politics and he ended up pissing off the West Saxon nobles for denouncing their immorality and for urging peace with the Danes. When Edwy succeeded his uncle Edred as king, he became Dunstan's bitter enemy for the abbot's strong censure of his scandalous lifestyle. Dun dun dun! Yeah, this guy didn't mess around. Also, these guys have the most medieval names. They do. I mean, we're 10th, early 11th century. Yeah. Like They have the most medieval <laughs> names. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Edwy confiscated Dunstan's property and banished him from the kingdom. Dunstan went to Ghent in Flanders, but soon returned after a rebellion replaced Edwy with his brother, Edgar. Okay. <laughs> who appointed Dunstan the Bishop of Worcester and London. When Edwy died, the civil strife ended and the country was reunited under Edgar. And then Edgar was appointed Dunstan Archbishop of Canterbury. Still not Anglican. Still not Anglican. <laughs> Still the Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury. Yep. <laughs> Again, needed to clarify. Thank you. <laughs> Dunstan worked with King Edgar to reform both church and state, and he was appointed legate by Pope John Twelfth, which is just like a representative of the Pope, kind of like a cardinal. Sure. Um, he used this position to continue his reform efforts rebuilding monasteries, and replacing inept secular priests with monks. Secular priests being not part of a religious order. Ah, so like third sons who've gone to seminary, as opposed to like, or like become parsons or whatever, as opposed to... Not necessarily about rank, but more about Jesuits and Benedictines. Okay, people have just not taken the orders of a particular... Yeah, you take special vows to be in an order, 
You can just be a priest, like a diocesan priest. He replaced these guys because they were doing a bad job. Okay. Not saying anything about diocesan priests today. They're all right. Sure. (laughs) Dunstan served as advisor under several kings, but eventually his influence started to wane. So he retired from politics to Canterbury to teach at the cathedral school where he stayed for the rest of his life. So, Shannon, what is Dunstan the patron of? Is he the patron saint of reformers? No, he is not. Damn. (laughs) I feel like so much of his life was just like getting appointed things by kings and reforming stuff, which means he's probably the patron saint of something super random. (laughs) Yes, he is. Because he's not the patron saint of England, because George is the patron saint of England. Again, there can be multiple. I guess that's true, but that would be my other guess. (laughs) What is he the patron saint of? He is the patron of armorers, blacksmiths, blind people, gold workers, goldsmiths, jewelers, lighthouse keepers, locksmiths, musicians, Silver workers, silversmiths, and swordsmiths. Shout out to our sword friends who listen to this podcast. Hi, sword friends. <laughs> um, smiths. Lots of kinds of smiths. Which all I can think is there's that comment that he was really good at art. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned it as part of his challenge. I guess. And I guess like uh, lighthouse workers, maybe because of the candle thing. That would make sense. Yeah, I was wondering about that one. Blind people? I do not know. <laughs> but blind people have like a gazillion patron saints, I feel like. <laughs> there, I, if I dug into his backstory, there might be something. It also, There also might not. There might have been like one person who prayed to him one time and their blindness was cured and now he's the patron of blind people because that's yeah. sometimes how it works. Sure. I just have to say that guys like Dunstan get to be the patron saint of, like, 18 random things, and Hildegard is still not the patron of anything. We gotta reappropriate some patronages. <laughs> this has become my personal mission. It's okay. She's the patron of my heart. Oh, <laughs> She is just so cool. <laughs> and she has a cookie recipe. We're gonna make her cookies sometime. Yes, we do have to make her cookies. That'll be its own special episode. <laughs> I like it. I love it. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to ever, like, tell your friends about the show on Facebook, we now have a Facebook page. So if you go to facebook.com slash school number four heathens, just like our Twitter handle, you will find, or you can just search us at Sunday School for Heathens on Facebook. Give us a like. Tag us in a Facebook status. Tag us in something cool that happened in your day. Or just like us on Facebook. You can also still tweet at us at school number four heathens, or you can shoot us an email at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Thank you so much for Adam Griffin for all of the awesome sounds that are not our voices in the show. And thank you to David Griffin for editing our voices and those sounds together into one awesome episode. Also for making our super cool logo. Also, thanks for having a great dog. Um, I just really like your dog. She is a good dog. She's such a good dog. And I feel like we haven't shouted her out recently, so I needed to give her a shout out this week. And no fun fact about David, but fun fact about David's dog, Corey. Yeah. She's a Baltimore Orioles fan. It's true. (laughs) She has a jersey. (laughs) Brian Drunk bought that jersey on the internet. (laughs) David is not a baseball fan. (laughs) But Brian is. (laughs) Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. Amen? Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm